0: Welcome to the Tales of the Cold North, our recap of our adventures in our Dungeons and Dragons campaign featuring members of the Whiskodice Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast. Welcome to the Tales of the Cold North. I am your dm for today's session the one the only the the with the most and i am joined by a pair of the illustrious players from our wonderful dungeons and dragons campaign why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves
1: i am ghostwalker i play eonros the half-elf monk
0: otherwise known as matt
2: hey this is justin the meeples champion Also known as Koth the Paladin.
0: All right. We have a number of other characters that are in this campaign. Of course, you can go back to listening to episode 83 for more of an introduction to each of those characters. But uh, uh, we have Rika, the halfling druid. Swifty, the human mage. Lindell the halfling rogue. And Deacon, the half-elf sorcerer. This is episode two of the Tales of the Cold North, our Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Today is September 29th, 2021, and on today's episode we'll recap all of our fun that we had through sessions three and four and the makeup session in between those. So let's go ahead and pick it up where we left off on that big cliffhanger from the previous episode. I am very interested in finding out what you guys are going to try to do next.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Ben. In this session, the party found itself recovering from the fights with the two separate verbigs. And now decided that uh, with this big room with multiple exits that we should probably protect ourselves and hide for a little bit and get a little bit of rest. So like any good party, we found a little corner to hide in, slept with the goats, and uh, tried to go on a rest. Unfortunately, that was not to be the case today. Not very long into our first watch, uh, of course, the ogre that we heard so much about stumbled into our room. So here we thought the verbig were probably the ogre, and uh, no, unfortunately, that was not meant to be. So the ogre came in, as well as a polar bear that the party now had to deal with. Uh, party was a little bit scared, I won't lie. Uh, there was a lot of concern because we hadn't had time to get spells back. We had really exhausted all our healing. Uh, but the fight went pretty quickly our way. We uh, were able to finally get a little bit of sleep, though there was much debate amongst the group to, to, to really, really figure out whether or not it was really safe to sleep but uh we're able to at least get a short rest in uh get finally decided to do a little bit of the cave spelunking and uh one room over uh where the ogre was actually staying we were able to find the missing mead so the party was excited we actually were able to complete that uh, part of our quest found the mead that we could uh get on our way. Unfortunately, we very quickly discovered that the mead was just too heavy. So two of us went back, and uh, there was a broken wagon in the other area that uh, Ionros and uh, another character went back to work on fixing the wagon. Uh, The rest of the party, though, went a little bit deeper into the caves and uh, were able to find uh, what looked like a very well-built tomb. Hidden in this very rough hewn area. So, uh, definitely some scary vibes, definitely some feeling of uh, ghosts or undead in that area. They made the decision they weren't going to play with it right then, considering we hadn't really recovered completely. But then, uh, you know, found some other interesting things in the caves. Uh, definitely a statue to a woman buried in water, but frozen party really debated a little bit but then eventually decided that we would uh, lick our wounds and head back to the town
0: yeah that really surprised me that part uh, when you guys decided to lick off your wounds and run back to town with all of those other potential things you could investigate yeah chose the better part of not exploring and returning to nurse your wounds
1: yeah well, and that's one of those—you uh, know—does the DM just throw those pages out? <laughs> but uh, we marked that on our our list of we're going to come back here at least in hope that it hasn't been picked clean by the time we get back here. So,
2: at this point, so I will mention that this was the session that I missed. But at this point, what was the like level of the party? What, what level is everybody at in this session? Were we two yet?
1: You're still two. Everybody was level two. We were level two. Point. Okay,
2: so we so. were a little okay. I was thinking maybe everybody was still level one, and that was what kind of had everyone spooked to keep exploring potentially. So but you
0: guys leveled after session one. So okay,
2: yeah. okay.
1: Yeah, Couldn't I think remember. the the thing that really had everybody spooked was that we had gone three encounters back to back, and everybody was pretty well tapped out, even with. Having, I think we got, maybe we got a long rest, but for some reason I want to say we only ended up with a short rest in the caves.
0: Nope, it was a short rest.
1: Yeah, the, the okay. short rest was enough to recover a little bit, but, I mean, Koth was damaged, uh, Ionros was damaged. There wasn't a lot of heavy depth to hit points and uh, spells, so we thought, let's go back to town. We can always mm-hmm. come back. Yep. The The party was dragging this wagon. We were able to—I I can't remember if we set free the goats or we just hauled them back to town to sell them, but uh, we did our best to get the goats out as well, rather than leaving them to starve and freeze to death in the snow. Made our way back to town and, you know, went to the mead hall and immediately were greeted by this, you know, very gregarious dwarf by the name of Shandar Froth. He cracked open one of those mead barrels and was, from Iomros' perspective, this guy's a little shady, and he immediately starts acting like he's going to try to win the speakership. And while he's celebrating, I mean, you can tell he's trying to take some of the glory here and, you know, win over the townspeople by spreading around this wonderful mead and things like that. So...
2: The, the previous party. speaker had been killed by the ogre who took the meat, is that is correct? I recall. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: he had, he had been killed in the previous session and uh so the party wasn't really trusting the guy. I mean I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm pretty sure Rika decided that she would just go sleep in the corner and uh wasn't super thrilled when we woke her up, but we're like, We're gonna go over to Olivessa's. We don't really like this guy. So we went over to Essa, uh, ended up staying there with her for the night. But as we were leaving, we decided that we would leave behind two of our brave adventurers to at least help her out. Um, I know I and several of the party members had encouraged Olivesa to run for the speakership. and She didn't seem too thrilled with that. But uh, we left behind Koth and Deacon to oversee some of the things, make sure that the mead got back to where it needed to be, and at least kind of keep an eye on what was going on with the speakership in this town. Because they seemed like good people. With that, the rest of the party, which was Lyndall, Rika, Swifty, and Janros, we made our way to East Haven.
0: She was actually very keen on Koth becoming the speaker.
2: The way it was related to me was that she, you know, suggested that Koth potentially run for the speakership and that the party essentially, you know, wanted to let Koth, i.e. me, (laughs) make that call. And so they also served as sort of a good reason to leave us behind in the town since myself and Brian, who plays Deacon, missed that session.
0: Yep, it worked out pretty well, and it only meant that we had to have people play your characters for about an hour, hour and a half of the session before we got on to the next step. So that was a, a real nice way to smooth in-game, be able yeah. to take take things that were happening and not force people to have to play characters who aren't there. That isn't always going to work out that, that nicely, yeah. but it worked out pretty well there.
2: But the rest of the party was kind of on the hot on the heels of uh, Targa's crew who was going to East Haven. That was why you were headed to East Haven, right?
1: Yes, that's that's why we decided that we couldn't really stick around and search the ruins. A lot of the party was actually a little bit... I, I want to say a lot of the party was, was a pretty split on whether or not we went after the Mead anyways. So coming out of that... My character at least decided that the party seemed pretty split. Let's make sure we finish up and go after Targa and uh, really get to East Haven. Because the concern was if we delay too much, somebody's going to get killed in East Haven. And we were already set to kind of chase this group down. Right. So the group made their way to East Haven, entered a new town. Some of us had not been there before, or at least it had been a little while found our way around. Unfortunately, uh, found a few places that we could get info. We we have the wet trout, of course, who doesn't want to go to a seedy bar down by the waterfront. So we also found the White Lady Inn, which was a place that we figured was a little nicer. We could stay for the evening, but they also had some interesting things going on in there that we'll get to in a minute. But on my way into town, unfortunately, Ian Rose ran into his uncle, and when he ran into his uncle, some interesting things came to light that I felt was a little unfortunate that not everybody was there. But, you know, my uncle is apparently a drunk and, you know, seems so surprised to see me and starts trying to babble on about the things that went on with Ian Rose's parents and... Yonros kind of cuts him off and really gets rude with him, which I feel like isn't a side that people have seen from Yonros yet. And really kind of puts his hand out like, you know, I don't really want to deal with you, old man. And, you know, now is not the time for this. And kind of dismisses him as we move on, you know, for the night. Um, You know, and it's a little unfortunate nobody else is here. I I was kind of interested to see somebody else's perspective on what they thought happened there.
0: I will say there is an interesting backstory piece because this plays into Yanros's backstory of being orphaned basically at a at a relatively young age yeah. from a uh, raid by some of the Regged uh, tribes people on the town he's from, which I don't know has fully come to light as far as his backstory, but it's important here to set up. Some of the things that your uncle was talking about. Yep, he does bring it to light in this conversation in front of everybody. He does, which I'm sure annoyed Eon Rose to no measure because he had not brought it up yet.
1: Yes, it, it it did, and it was one of those things that Eon Rose was not happy to talk about in that company. Uh, he hadn't really felt comfortable even sharing it with the smaller group he'd gotten to know, and um, but. Yeah, it was it was interesting because it's it's it plays into the next session in my sort of mental state in that next session. But uh, yeah, that
0: explains some
2: things, interesting. yeah.
1: <laughs> that the first night I think we just kind of went to sleep. The next day, took advantage of the opportunity to start checking out the town. The party split up a little bit, and some of us went to the bar, the Wet Trout, and. there was some gambling going around and we decided we would try to gather some information and, you know, Ian Rose had sat down and did a little bit of gambling and everybody else kind of spread out and we're trying to gather information and uh, Ian Rose did pretty well at gambling, but failed miserably at information gathering. (laughs) So, uh, but we did meet, uh, you know, a few different characters, met the fairy master who is a tiefling uh, named Scython you know, the other party members at at one point had gone over to the white lady and they do an evening seance and they had actually gotten to the seance and got an opportunity to talk to the ghost. Uh, I was, you know, my character was not there, but it was interesting because they suddenly got some deeper information and, you know, you're left with that typical ghost, ghost type information. You get very limited access to information and it kind of, build in some gaps
2: for us. There there are two questions I think that they asked. Do you remember exactly what what the questions were?
1: I believe the first question that they asked, if somebody can, like, where somebody, no. They asked something about, I'm sorry, this is going to come out awful, so I need to get my head straight first. I I really didn't write them down because my character wasn't there. I know that I one of them. I
0: honestly don't remember what the questions I, were.
1: I I remember one of them was like about who can you pay someone or how would you? And they say like pay the right person. And then the other one was
2: yeah. oh, okay.
1: Was like about
2: the other one. Uh, I thought Zephin. was who is committing the murders? The one with the blue who's eyes. Who's committing the murders of the right the the yep. so, lottery uh, yeah. people and the and the. Yeah. The man with the blue eyes or the one with the blue eyes, they said? I believe so. Is that what the ghost said? Yeah. Okay.
1: And the other one was a question specifically around how you would pay to get out of the lottery. And the ghost gave ah. a very non specific answer of pay the right person. <laughs> so
0: God, that voice was yeah. brutal but it was i thought it was fun it was really fun to the session but then i went into a coughing fit after it
1: it, <laughs> it it was a lot of fun it really added a lot to the session i thought but you know the party was a little bit lost at this point but you know my character was not sure where they wanted to go but Lindell and rika decided okay we've been in town for a day it's time to find torga's crew and they took off to go find Torga's crew and where they were, you know, staying. And you know, they were able to find them in 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 the in the market area. But then, you know, tried to do a little bit of tailing, tried to stay a little bit out of sight, but failed miserably, and were spotted by Sefik, who is, you know, the guy with the blue eyes, who's been kind of our uh, potential bad guy here for a while, and. Uh, had a very nice confrontation with him, where he did some interesting magic effects. Uh, appeared right in front of them, threatened them with if they if he saw them again, he would kill them. And then poof, you know, basically teleported a very brief period distance away and then disappeared. So you it know, wasn't
0: the- so much a teleport as if as as he moved is
1: very quickly So
0: quickly that it looked like he almost turned into the wind yeah Is i think the way i described it
1: yep and but it was interesting i thought it was a great counterpoint to really end that session because the party kind of stared at it and was like wow okay now we have this guy he's threatening uh, but what was interesting about that and i didn't mention earlier was while the group was in the market area the one thing they did see that was an interesting thing that came back the next session was they spotted the ferry master paying money to Torga's crew. So that kind of comes in, in our next session when we talk a little bit about it here in a minute or two.
2: Yep. Suspicious, suspicious behavior.
1: Yep. I mean, we thought about it. We were like, Oh, okay. So now he's paying off Torga's crew. We wonder why. So, We started to kind of stitch it together, but we didn't really have a full picture of it yet.
0: I was very proud of myself with the way I ended that session with the big mic drop moment with Sefik and, and Rika and Lindell. Yeah. It was just one of those moments. I, I don't think you always hit that beat perfectly when you get to a session wrap-up because of you know this inconvenient thing with real-world time, but that was... You know, I was watching the clock and and looking at things and thinking, oh well, we're getting close to you know our our session time wrap up. These guys are tailing and somebody, well, Rika came running, kind of running up to Lindel and found Lindel and was all bubbly about all, t- telling him about the uh, the whole seance thing that they just had and talking to the ghost. And she's all like just chirpy and and loud and. And Cephech happened to notice, and I was like, yeah. "Okay, this is a great way to to really build up Cephech as a villain. Allow the players that they, you know, give the players a reason to dislike this character a little bit more, but also start to, you know, cause this is this is session three at this point that you've been chasing Sephic. so there's been some build up on this guy at this point."
1: Yeah. I thought it was the perfect way to end that particular session. It was just that kind of, like you said, the timing and just where it landed was just absolutely great in that session. So after that, for me, it rolls into the next session, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about what happened to Deacon and Koth.
2: Right. So meanwhile, in Goodmead, so Deacon and Koth stayed in Goodmead to consider this suggestion that Koth run for the speakership of Goodmead and to investigate Shandar Froth, who Olivesa had indicated probably was not a good fit and was considered shady and not well-liked by many of the townsfolk, except for the fact that he had the support of the loggers in Goodmead, which I guess was kind of a critical part of populace in Goodmead, to have the support of. Uh, Deacon and Koth debated a fair bit as to if Koth should really consider being the Speaker of Goodmead. Olivesa believed he would be a good leader. Deacon was concerned that this could affect the party's ability to do what they needed to do and to really solve the more major concern of the mystery of the... You know, son being gone, we debated a little bit back and forth about it, but ultimately, Koth felt that it was his duty to run against this person who should not be a leader and take on that responsibility and do some good in the world.
0: That was a lot of work. You <laughs> yeah. guys kept coming up with the like, reasons why you wouldn't, why he shouldn't do it, and I was like, yeah. oh, I had to think on my feet. Because really, this is the whole plot arc for this session. This makeup session is getting Koth to, ru- to actually run for speaker of this town. <laughs> the town's not very big. Keep in mind, Goodmead is what 150 people, I think, yeah. tops this point in Icewind Dale's history. So it's, it's not a terribly big town. There is some internal politics between, maybe not factions so much, but as we'll find out here, some interactions that and people that Koth had to go a little extra out of his way to win over.
2: Koth decided to run, and essentially he started going door-to-door door and introducing himself to the citizens of Goodmeat and kissing babies and trying to win over the people. Deacon was trying to dig up dirt on Shandar Froth and see if he could find anything that was illicit about what he was doing or just any any kind of dirt on him ultimately not finding too much except that you know he might be involved in some shady dealings and generally most folk didn't have a good opinion of him
0: is it just me or is does deacon feel like he doesn't trust any of these townsfolk like it doesn't really matter who it is he just doesn't trust them
2: interesting
1: but that doesn't seem too surprising to me though and I'm not an expert on his background, but I probably know more than Koth in character that he was from the far north. He was from one of the barbarian tribes, so townsfolk probably aren't real, really his people. <laughs> so sure.
0: they aren't. And I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious. He's not here to rep- to represent it, but I'm kind of curious how much of that he's using to role play and play up his backstory and how much how much of it is just brian
2: <laughs> i think partly too deacon is much more invested in the overall plot of solving the mystery of of the the darkness and i think these things seem like distractions to him and i think he he's talked in previous sessions that why are we going to? I think he was against going to to help, uh, them recover their mead, a good mead. He wanted to pursue leads to to the kind of the bigger mystery. So I think that's more his drive too.
0: And that plays up if he doesn't really, if he doesn't really care about what's going on in the towns. He doesn't really trust these people. If that's the way, if that's his angle, then yeah, I mean, I wouldn't care yeah. either if I was Deacon. I would be yeah. like, let's get the ball rolling this is why are we stopping to help these people i don't care let them deliver die whatever
2: yep one one point koth did make uh to deacon while we were debating this was that if koth was the speaker that could potentially give the party a base of operations and some even if it's small some authority in the ten towns that they could use to to leverage that, to solve these bigger mysteries and, and to have some more resources. So that was one thing we talked about.
1: Are you sure it was Koth who had this thought? I mean, that's just, I, I mean,
2: Koth didn't say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely did some out of character discussion of this, which sometimes complex thoughts just need to be done out of character. This,
0: this conversation to get to this point. like. Like we started the, I figured this session would go for like an hour and a half, and we started this session, you know, relatively late on a weeknight. I think it was like eight o'clock. We were like thirty or forty-five minutes into this yeah, session by the time the two of them decided that Koth would run. So I think Deacon can like, slash Brian was panic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Deacon and Flash Brian was losing patience with it all too. I think a little bit, but. That all to say, Koth did decide to run, and one of the things. So he, as I said, he went door to door. He talked himself up, kissed whatever babies needed kissing. I, you know, how many townsfolk would let a half were kiss their baby? Who knows. But more importantly, Shandar Froth had control of the loggers, who were a important political faction, as Ben said, for lack of a better word, in the town. The loggers supported Shandar, so Koth needed to win them over. Deacon and Koth headed over to the mead hall where a bunch of the loggers were um, drinking and, and relaxing. Koth decided to call for the strongest logger and challenge them to an arm wrestling match. And his hope was to convince them that he would be a good leader and show that he was strong and good. A large, burly logger woman sat down and accepted koth's challenge at first she uh thought koth was weak she was very very uh strong-willed and convinced that koth was was not gonna win the day here and the the epic arm wrestling match began the way ben ran this was really cool Uh, I hadn't seen something like this before. But it it kind of was a a back and forth of uh, strength checks and pushing the opponent's arm one notch towards the table. And if you failed, you'd get pushed back up to the center and then back down towards a loss. Or you'd win one and go towards the other side. Um and Koth at the, at all throughout this was trying to convince the loggers that he needed them to keep the town strong and that he was a good leader and be good for the town. So back and forth they wrestled, but ultimately and perhaps even with some divine intervention, Koth won the arm wrestling competition with Sasha, the logger and potentially half orc woman, to win the support of the loggers for his candidacy for speakership.
0: Yeah, I imagine Sasha is like quarter half-orc,
2: quarter-orc, quarter, yeah, quarter, quarter
0: yeah. Orc. Um, so she's, she's got a little orc in her ancestry, but not, you know, not enough to be painfully obvious, but yeah, I thought this was a great opportunity when you, because this was so cough, right? The test of strength and the one-on-one challenge to yeah, allow true. you to shine.
2: That's what Koth thought would be the best way to, to do that. Like, how do I show that? Well, but that also, it
0: allowed me to to take an idea that I saw executed fairly well on Critical Role, Campaign 2, mm-hmm. with the Mighty Nine, And at one point, Matt Mercer, uh, I can't remember who was in the arm wrestling. I think it was uh the female barbarian That's 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 in that group. Is in an arm wrestling contest, and it was a great opportunity for, you know, I, he did it with a bunch of opposed strength checks back and forth, and just kind of, you know, you gotta, you've got to match the pacing so that you get to a conclusion within an appropriate amount of time, but you want to you let the players kind of play with it and build and get that tension going on each one of those dice rolls, and it works so well here,
2: really I, and did. I'm really
0: glad I, I. I you leverage that idea and thank you critical role and Matt Mercer for that one probably not the only time I will steal an idea it worked and it was great and it was fun and every and we were all, we were both laughing i think Brian was even like pretty pretty intently in watching and and paying attention at this point
2: yeah i would roll really well and then like make some progress and then suddenly just biff a roll and i was back to square one or even near losing And it really did feel like there was something at stake. Like, if I couldn't get the loggers, Koth wouldn't have support to win the speakership. It was really well done, and the way you narrated some of it was just excellent. Really, really cool moment in that session.
1: The thing I love about this is, because I wasn't there, this sounds like such a Koth thing to do. (laughs) Like completely 100% Koth logic. And I can just imagine it in my head as you're telling it. So fantastic.
2: <laughs> it was, it was very fun. Yeah. I think it was 100%. This is what I think Koth would do to try to make this happen. And it, yeah. And it worked. He won the arm wrestling match. Sasha declared him to be strong. And the loggers supported Koth.
0: Sasha is basically the female Koth at this <laughs> point.
2: <laughs> she's almost certainly smarter. I mean, there's, <laughs> but
0: she's probably got the little bit less on the edge on Koth's got her on strength, but but yeah, she's probably got a, an intelligence point or two more than Koth.
2: Yep, she made an impression on Koth, uh, definitely. After winning the support of the loggers, right after meeting, right after winning the support of the loggers. A group of maybe 12 armed mercenaries just burst into the meat hall. Swords drawn, just ready to attack. Immediately, the loggers jump up and just throw themselves into battle. Koth and Deacon, I mean, you had us roll initiative immediately, basically as these guys burst in. And so we jump in, and the loggers are taking out these mercenaries, we assume. Just these guys busted into the meat hall. And the loggers start taking them out. Koss is fighting. Deacon's shooting fire at them. It was so unexpected. So some of them started to to run as the loggers really tore into them. So Koss decided he wants to capture one to question him. With Deacon's help, we managed to subdue one of these guys, tie him up, and get a little bit of intimidation going to question him as to what why they were there what were they were doing and it was revealed that this group was hired to come and rough up the citizens of goodmead in order to make shandar froth look good because the idea was they'd come rough up a bunch of citizens he would sweep in and scare them off send them packing and take credit for saving the town but unfortunately for him Goth managed to get a confession out of one of these guys and he spilled the beans. So, right after we capture this guy and intimidate a confession out of him, Shandar Froth waltzes into the mead hall and says, Don't worry, everyone, I've taken care of it. And as if he had just scared off all these mercenaries, only to see that Goth and Deacon had this uh, one wrapped up who had already outed him. Also, to point out, the revealed that this group was hired by the speaker of Targos, Nerth Maxil Danar, to do this in support of Shandar Froth. That was an interesting piece of information that the speaker of a uh, of this other town in the Ten Towns actually hired these guys. So, like I said, Shandar shows up, and basically we end up. I think Sasha just tosses him out of the out of the meat hall on his nose. Yep. After that. The speakership is won by Koth, and he is appointed the new speaker of Goodmead. Beyond that, the captured mercenary Koth sentences him to labor to pay off the amount of money, to basically just sentences him to labor with the loggers so that there's really no prison in Goodmead's very small town. So we needed to do something with him. After that, we decided that we needed to meet back up with our friends in East Haven, and Koth decided he would deputize uh, Sasha to keep an eye on the town in his absence. And we headed out to meet up with the rest of the party in session four.
0: I found it very interesting, a couple of things in that session that I were I think were great character-defining moments for Koth and Deacon. And it was very clear Deacon... Didn't really want to be a part of this, and that he was really only there in support of Koth, and at every chance he had, he was like, "Let's blow this joint and get out of here." But cough Koth, Koth's sense of ultimately duty kind of drove him down this path, and I kind of suspected that that's where you were going to go with it, but I, I wasn't one hundred percent sure um and then the other point right at the end when you're laying because this is koth's first really official act as speaker now is you have this this thug or this bandit or this hired mercenary whatever exactly he is and he's confessed to this crime and he you know you know there was some act of trying to kill at least from your appearances he, they were actively trying to kill these people here in in the mm-hmm. Mead Hall and in Good Mead, and you had to pass sentence on them. You didn't have the tools or the the access or wherewithal to be able to lock them up. So the sentence that you came up with, it got the real sense right away that you didn't want to kill him right. <laughs> for his crimes, that it wasn't murder-worthy.
2: I think... So. That, right, no one had been killed in their attack, and that, as he confessed, was not really their goal. Koth might have felt differently if someone had actually gotten killed in their attack. Some of them had got the loggers killed, some of them, uh, but nobody in the town had actually gotten killed, I think.
0: Yep, no one had, no one got hurt, I think, barely. Yeah. A couple <laughs> of loggers got some, some dings on them, but that's it.
2: That played into it some, but you're correct. Dick Koth didn't feel it would be just to kill him.
0: But you did get one other reward out of this, and that was you were given the speaker's house. Yep. So I promised you that I would get you the map for that house, and it took me a little bit, (laughs) a little bit after session four, but I popped that over to you tonight. I just wanted to get your reaction to what you think of your new digs.
2: Yeah, no, I I'm looking at it right now. It looks awesome. So it's a, a two-story house, not humongous in sort of the classical wooden framed medieval style. You know, the first floor is just just simple with like a wash basin and um maybe some crates or chairs. And there's a, a second floor with sort of some living areas and a bedroom and a hearth up there. Uh yeah, that's <laughs> it's I think very fitting for this speakership of a very small town but for koth i think it's practically a mansion
0: yep it's a little two-story tutor with the first floor is a stone floor yeah it's probably housed animals at one point in its life but now it's just kind of storage area and then you go upstairs and it's more of a a small living livable area which is really intended for one or you know you might be you, you might be able to hold up one or two you know a small family in this thing in the in the second floor uh, we'll, we'll but, get everybody
2: uh, in there we'll we'll yeah, get cozy sleeping
0: <laughs> arrangements will be interesting if we we have a six-player party in the it's sleeping in this thing at once but
2: two haplings they two, they can go in the in this big chair both the party
0: of <laughs> has a place of operations and you guys can outfit it or change the layout i mean i can update it on the map i have a i i picked up a a mapping piece of software today to to actually draw it out and take the okay. time, so I can I can modify the map or, or you know adjust it based on the furniture and whatever, so that we can we can update on that as time goes by. Yeah,
2: awesome.
1: So then we were going to roll into our fourth session. Now, one of the things I do want to preface this before we kind of dive into the details on this particular session is, you know, Ben highlighted at the very beginning of this session. He said. Hey, you know, think about your characters, who you are, who you want to be. And I will be the first one to admit I felt like I was struggling with Ian Rose's psyche a little bit in this. And it's not because of who he was, but Ian Rose was a very reserved individual. He doesn't really talk that much. I had this image in my head that he might occasionally pipe in with. You know, words of wisdom and things like that, because he is, you know, he's a pretty wise guy. But the the thing I was struggling with is, we actually have a lot of very good personalities amongst the players, and and so like we have some very good comedic relief. We have some, you know, Reek is this bubbly, super hyper halfling personality, and then. We have Lindell, who is a sneaky, roguey style. He plays this kind of sleazy halfling very well and Koth is Koth. But like then we have like Deacon and myself, and and I and I'm I'm glad to hear Ben say that Deacon kind of showed up a little bit more in this last session, but I felt like Ianros has just been kind of this quiet guy in the bottom hiding behind it, but
2: Oh, not in this session.
1: <laughs> oh no. And 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 there was a reason behind that though, and I think what really helped me was when Ben threw my uncle into the last session, it was that kind of, there's this darker undertone to the background of Ian that you all don't know. And as we dig more into the sessions and it more comes out, I'll share more, but there's this kind of darker undertone to his background that is now exposed. And so he's very worked up about this so Mm. he's got this stronger tone in this next session i'll just say compared to anything anybody's seen before so i just thought it was really good timing ben because you're like hey think about who your character is and 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 how you want to present it and i'm like this is actually a transformational time for ian rose because he has this vision in his head of I'm this monk and I'm very calm and whatever but now his uncle has shaken that in him and so he reacts not maybe the best way so
0: I will say this about that pick this these little short things that I want to like focus on for each session is kind of you know reinforce concepts ideas rules to make sure that we're clear so you know I talked about character death in one session I talked about you know, this was more of a hey, you know, I want you know, where where are you going because the more you can feed into that into the game, the more I can kind of feed off of it and give you some direction. But I hadn't done with the other characters at this point. I think with every other character in the group, I have now touched on their backstory and Yanros was the last person that I got to their backstory to throw something into the game that that helps to start Tie it and bubble it out, just tease it out a little bit at a time uh, as we build this narrative together. And because the time, because we only meet roughly once a month, the time difference between session three and now session four, I had actually completely forgotten about dropping that piece. And it was so, it was right at the beginning of that third session for Ian Rose that. It makes so much more sense now as we get into what happened in session four.
2: Hearing you talk about that Matt too, I definitely can I agree I shed some light on what happens. So as we started out session four, I believe everyone except Coth and Lindell, who essentially were still in Goodmead at Deacon. this point. Coth and Deacon, excuse me. Coth and Deacon were still in Goodmead, but the rest of the party was at the wet trout. Essentially, the plan was to go and try to get some more information from Sithen or Sithen, the uh, fairy master who they had observed taking payment from Torga's crew for something unknown. Lyndall <laughs> and Janros, I think Lindle approached Sithen first in his, I don't know if sleazy is the right word, but in his slick, roguish way, tried to insinuate that sithhen had had paid Torga's crew to get him out of the lottery. that was the what the party suspected. Sithen did not take kindly to his <laughs> accusations uh he he denied it and basically said he was paying them for some Clothing because he was getting out of the ferry business and wanted to start a clothing business since everyone just needed warmer clothing now that all the rivers had frozen. He couldn't really make money as a ferry master anymore. Linda wasn't too successful at getting any kind of confession or information out of him. Yanris, uh, uh, at that point, stepped in as well to try to get some info out of this guy, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah,
2: he did. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, went straight into intimidation mode this time. Yeah. I mean it was uh I, I he didn't really cut he didn't really cut around the or beat around the bush on this one. He he pretty much went straight for the throat on this one and said, Hey, look, you're gonna tell me what I want. so he he didn't let's just say he went with physical threats, but didn't actually bump <laughs> him up too bad. Just kinda
0: Yet.
2: Yet. <laughs> yeah, there is yeah, no direct uh, violence to the guy, but certainly threats. Yeah, intimidating tactics for sure.
0: The whole table was like, I th- I think when was it the was this the point? I know I think it was a little bit later, and so I, I won't. I, I'll tease right now. A little bit later, I think the whole table went little jaw dropped about what the <laughs> Rose was doing. But yeah,
2: not, uh, not quite there, I yeah. was a
0: little like. Wow, he's getting a little more in the grill of this guy than I was anticipating or expecting.
1: Yeah, actually he went pretty hard on him at this point. Later on, he went after him in different ways, but yeah, this was um this was one this was the part where Ianros did the double tap, like the very mm-hmm. stern tap of the quarter staff on the ground and then laid it right next to the guy's neck. And it was just like yeah, that was where the two people at the table kind of cleared out. And like this is where in my head I have this image of like this is when the bar everybody stops and looks and it's like, oh crap.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, they they all just slunk away and and you guys are just Well, you're looming over Sith and not so much looming under him, I suppose. Halfling joke.
0: <laughs> Lindell rolled with this particularly well because all of a sudden i think Lyndall was like oh that's how you're gonna play this well i've been around the kind of people before that are rough and physical and want to bully people for stuff so sure i think he ran with it the pretty much the rest of the evening
2: Lindel and- had some moments of dialogue with this guy that just was a some- Great role-playing, I felt like, from Jason. Just some of the dialogue he had uh, when he was getting intimidating with this guy. Really, really good. Both of you guys were doing a really great job. Just made it really sell the the whole moment of intimidating (laughs) this guy. I think you did at least convince Scython to claim that he would cut off his dealings with Torga. Mm Mm-hmm. Whether or not we believe that or if we believe that he was starting a clothing business, not really clear, party wasn't sure about that. But he did say that he would cut off his dealings with them and eventually left. Party decided that because we still felt he was very likely the next target for murder that we're gonna surveil his house. I don't think much happened in between that. Did we go right to his I don't think you went to surveil.
0: I think you guys went straight up to the front door of this poor guy. Well,
2: I I think the idea was that we were going to surveil, but it definitely didn't turn out that way.
0: Well,
1: yeah. I mean, we got there pretty much right after Torga's crew had dropped the goods off. Yep. So it went from surveillance to, well, we have something to go see.
2: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) there was goods. There were people delivering some heavy bags or sacks of goods of some kind to his house. I think Yanros is the first one to just go right up to Scython's door and start banging on his door. And In general, our intentions were to <laughs> prevent this guy from getting killed by Suffolk, we assumed. Yandros bangs on the door, and as soon as Scython sees him, slams the door in his face. So what does Yanros do?
1: What anybody good would do, right? Try to kick
2: it down. <laughs> he immediately tries to kick in his door.
0: Entered draw drop mom- moment number one.
2: Yeah, so <laughs> yandros the monk is trying to kick down this guy's door. And I think at that point Rico was just like, What is going on?
0: I was pretty sure Robin was going to smack Matt for that. <laughs> <laughs> like right there at the table, I thought there was gonna be some spousal abuse, cause
2: she had been he saying throughout the happy. session. She had been saying <laughs> exactly. throughout the session, we need to go ask questions and and question these guys, or even she was arguing for going and questioning Sefik directly and just asking him questions. What? But uh, yeah, we went a little bit different way.
1: Well, that that led to one of the better lines of the night. I felt like. And and I, because I remember she was like, "What the hell?" And I was like, "I had questions."
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> She's like, "That's not what I meant." And I'm like, "But you had questions."
2: Yeah, we had got to get our questions answered. So Eonos tries to break down the door. Lindell comes from I think he was surveilling in a in a hiding place. He had kind of been scoping out some some good surveillance spots as Yenrys is going to the door and He comes in, tries to drop, kick the door down. No success there either. And I think at this point, Rika just decides to bail. She's like, I'm not doing this. I'm not having a part of this. And she heads back to the White Lady. She was just done at that point. (laughs) In the meantime, Scython actually escapes out the back. Yenrys just runs after him. So he's That's, just sort of r- running down an alley. Yandros is quite fast as a monk, so is able to uh, catch up to him. At least once did he, he he got away from you one time, right?
1: Yeah, he squirmed free of me the first time. So
0: Yandros yeah, tried to grapple him, right, and didn't succeed. No, oh, it was a very bad row.
2: Scython starts calling for help, calling for the guards. Yandros is chasing after him the guards end up showing up and stopping both Ynros and Siphon. And uh, at that point, you...
1: I accused him of a crime. I right. was trying to get him protected. So I i went with off-the-cuff trying to accuse him of a crime to to try to get him taken into custody and at least off the streets and away from Sephic
2: Which did work. The guards took you and him into custody and off to town hall. While you were, I guess, I don't know if you're at town hall or in a prison nearby. uh, You ended up meeting Captain Indra. Nurse meets Captain Indra. And relates essentially the mission of the party to investigate the murders that have been happening in these towns for people who have tried to get out of the lottery. You let him know that we suspected Suffolk was the murderer, and we've been pursuing him. Luckily for us, Captain Ginger had no love for Suffolk and the rest of uh, Torga's band, and essentially kind of let you out with a warning. told you to stay away from yeah. siphon, stay away from his house, uh, ended up letting you letting you go after you kind of explained what we were trying to do.
1: I will say the player's reaction at this moment was classic for me because like none of them is there. None of them's actually witnessing this occur and everybody at the table's like, Oh my God, you're going to tell them all our plans. <laughs> and I'm just like, and I'm just sitting there listening to the whole group just be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you're going to tell them everything.
0: Yeah. There was definitely of that moment. like, what are you doing, man? Why are you telling them everything? This was great from the DMs chair because for the vast majority of this session at this point, I basically didn't have to do a whole lot other than play Scython and be this poor abused guy. So one thing I did want to point out is East Haven is a in comparison to Goodmead is a much 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 larger town so where goodmead was like 150 people here east haven is got a population of about 750 and is about the third largest town in all of the 10 towns it's large enough that it has its own town hall which is where eon rose and seth and were taken they were putting their own separate rooms under guard it took a little while for the captain to show up and talk with jan rose i think i i think it was long enough that i was able to put him on pause and deal with what the other players were doing which at this point was Lyndall and um Twifty. swifty breaking into the now abandoned Scython's <laughs> house and rummaging through those bags which were actually clothes.
2: Yep, it appears he he had been telling the truth about that aspect, and that he was just attempting to start a new clothing business or uh, sell clothing.
1: I will say the classic for me was when Swifty and Lyndall then decided to rig the locks. That was awesome.
0: Yep, that was like okay. I don't. Sh- I'm not sure I follow this logic, but okay.
1: We're gonna make was- it easier for the bad guy to get in and kill him later.
0: <laughs> there might have just been some general we don't like Scython, and if he happens to get murdered, okay. <laughs> that's kind of what I was getting the vibe of at this point
1: yeah it was it was kind of interesting to see where everybody went at that point, so you know at this point, we're really. The nice thing is, well, and, and and understand, I mean, I know there's been a lot of talking here, folks, but, uh, you know, this was probably, what, about an hour, hour and a half in. And at this point, our other two party members catch up, because we decided for the night, it was just best to everybody get some sleep. Rick had already bailed on us. I'd not gotten in jail, which was probably for the best. But, uh, we decided to get some sleep, and hopefully Koth and Deacon would catch up with us. So yeah,
0: we we did some some magic of of
1: time TV, and like, time and space.
0: <laughs> I'm like, Brian and Justin have sat there for an hour and a half very patiently and a lot of times laughing because this was pretty ridiculous at this point. But uh, it was like, okay, you know, I'm going to, you know, at this point, I'm like, I don't want to tell you when they're going to show up because, you know, I wanted things to happen organically. But at the same time, like, hey, we got these two people that are sitting here. So yeah. a third of the people at the table are not getting to participate. Let's just speed up the timeline and get to the good stuff. I'm like, nothing will happen to this guy the next this this night because he's under watch and you don't have to, like, completely baby it. So we got we got to that evening of the next day cloth and deacon arrive
1: yep. so we we caught them up got them up to speed with what we were thinking and and this was actually i think one of the times that the party was very decisive on what they wanted to do because before that i would say before this session ian Rose was pretty on the fence on what the hell was the deal with cephic but you know i think definitely rika was more like let's go ask him and and uh you know Koth was very septic bad but <laughs> and and we knew where Lindel stood a long time ago swifty'll do whatever but uh you know I felt like it was pretty decisive so we really kind of went away with two prong a a, a, a two prong idea since I was already told stay the hell away from um Sythin's house I figured since I hadn't been bodily threatened by Sephic in a while, I could go hunt Sephic And Lindel went with me while the rest of the party was, went to stake out Scython's place. So the good news is they got there. They found that the, you know there were actually guards at Scython's place. There were two guards out front. And so we left. I got to the Wet Trout and figured out Sephic was there. and then the nice thing is, is when Sefik left, I was able to actually stealth after him. And it was actually pretty phenomenal roles from my perspective. So, you know,
0: I think Lindel.
1: I think he bailed returned. at some point.
0: I think you guys decided to have him return
1: and warn to the group,
0: warn the group because Cephik was on the move.
1: Yes. And he was moving towards Scython's place.
2: I think he had wanted to point out like hiding places that he had staked out earlier to kind of like, all right, here's here's some places we can hide that we can still be able to observe the house. But
0: which turned into the group's next debate for the evening, which was (laughs) how in the world they're gonna set up this location. And and fortunately for Ian Rose, he made a absolutely critical role in that stealth role to keep up with uh, seffic and pretty much stay out of line of sight or out of sight so seffic didn't really notice him because at this point it's pretty late in the evening we're talking you know in my mind we're talking about midnight or so the streets are pretty empty i mean this is only a 750 person town there's not much for businesses and a lot of the people are, you know, in their homes trying to stay warm because let's don't forget it's negative probably about 40 degrees out right about at this point yep. in, the game, in the game. And the players back outside of Scython's are sitting there debating, debating, debating. And I'm like, okay, yeah, if this keeps up, we're going to be doing, we're going to be talking about what to do for another 45 minutes. So, I politely interrupted.
1: Yep. Nothing like a couple of ice daggers to be polite and make <laughs> and, a point. But.
0: And Sephik entered the scene.
1: The thing I really liked about it, though, was it made perfect sense to me how the combat kind of rolled. Which, Sefik is a very smart guy. Now, I've seen so many times, you know, in this case, I would say the party was in a bad spot. They were too busy arguing with each other about what the hell they were going to do. So Sithen really had the Cepic had the drop on them.
2: And I'm sure we watched some some stealth rolls that <laughs> when he first showed up. I don't think he saw us right away. But you
0: guys were kind of huddled together bickering. I don't think there was much for.
2: Did we not for, do?
0: There was not even a stealth roll involved at this okay. point. i I just like he walked I... up. Now you guys are bickering. You're not trying to hide or be stealthy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you had done some stealth rolls initially, but then you started debating. (laughs) And I'm like, there's no way he's not going to see them behind the wall. But the nice thing I felt was his opening salvo, because he saw the party, and he was like, there's the two mages. And he went straight for them. And he just about dropped them. It was impressive, to say the least. So, you know, here we are, our two magic users who are by far heavy hitters, and he pretty much nailed them right out of the gate.
2: I believe Rika actually got to act first and threw a thunder wave at him. He managed to save and just didn't get knocked back or anything like that. Yep. He was able to respond to to that. And then, yeah, as you said, I think, was it Swifty he attack next?
1: She He went Strifty and Deacon. Yep. So he had two daggers, and he threw one at Swifty and one at Deacon. But it was, uh, it was an impressive first salvo. But, I mean, the thing that I thought was great about that particular fight was that we were just pouring on the damage. Like, I, I felt like Koth got in his face right away, dealt out decent damage. My character dealt out decent damage. And then that first round realization of what's going to happen, which was, oh, he's going to heal. And then even though we'd kind of surrounded him and, and the party was positioning themselves to really lay it on the hurt next town, then he's like, oh, and now I'm going to flit this other area. So uh, there's yeah. definitely magic going on here and he's magically healing. And suddenly we're like, oh, this is not going to be a simple fight. So what started as this, like, yeah, he had a pretty heavy salvo, but I felt fairly confident on our positioning in the first round suddenly turns into this, oh, crap,
2: moment. We put a lot of damage on him, and we had two guards. uh, Well, uh, maybe one of the guards jumped in right away, but we had essentially, it was almost seven on one. Yeah. And we put a lot of damage on him, and then he just... Speeds away, heals, and is, yeah, barely hurting. So it was, yeah. We knew we were, we knew we we're in for a a tough fight.
1: Yeah, but I, I mean, I thought it played out really well because Koth, seeing that he was running, took advantage of the situation to use one of his own spells and special abilities to say, "Hey, I'm going to challenge you to a duel." And I felt like even though it wasn't a damaging thing. I, I know from our conversations that it was like that really kept it in, like, it slowed the momentum of Cephik, because otherwise yeah. we were going to be playing this cat-and-mouse game with him for, like, hours, in my mind,
2: you know, and where we'd be doing that, a lot of
1: hit-and-run, but...
2: Yeah, it was clear, too, that unless we stayed ahead of him, he could easily outpace us and get away from us and get out of our range, especially for you and I as Melee. Yeah. characters he could just waltz away from us and we were not just not the other characters weren't well positioned we were playing catch-up to where he was most of the time yeah he could easily just wind away shoo, around a corner yeah so <laughs> yeah so the the uh the, the compelled duel ended up being pretty important to to limit that movement yeah
1: well, I mean, the other thing that was really helpful is Swifty he went with Tosh's hideous laughter.
2: Oh, that's right. Oh my right.
1: gosh, that was awesome. We had a uh,
2: whole round and a half, maybe, of him prone on the ground. I, I believe so, and he yeah.
1: still didn't look like he took too much damage. But no. the funny thing in my mind was that, you know, and, and something I want the 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 people listening to bear in mind too, is we started this with the idea that we really wanted to capture him. We wanted to take him alive if we had an opportunity. Yep. So we're kind of pulling punches at the beginning. We kind of handicapped our mages. They were not firing full bore on these guy, this guy. So, you know, they're not really kicking out their best spells and trying to lay the damage on him. So Yeah, we're you and I both were, were
2: trying to, if we had the option make sure we were trying to deal non-lethal damage if we ever were to, to push him over yeah. Uh, the edge. Yeah. But
1: uh, yeah, we, we did a little bit of cat and mouse. He had some good roles. He had some bad roles, you know, eventually my character just kind of reached this decision point and said, you know, this is a long battle and I, you know, Sephic takes off. I think he finally succeeded one of his roles to get away from your uh, duel. And I just screamed out to the party when I hit my turn. I just said, "Drop him!" And you know, I got up to him, did a little bit of damage, but then Lindel, you know, got got to give the rogues credit where credits due, and he comes out and drops him on the spot. So, uh, but it was a really as he was looking,
2: it seemed he was near escape. He was running away. Back toward out uh, off the map it seemed, and Lindo was able to take this final long shot and yeah. just nail him.
1: <laughs> I mean, but it, it, it's definitely. I mean, from a from a setup perspective, the nice thing is we had like like Ben was talking about, we've been building towards this confrontation with this guy. And I felt like the confrontation didn't really disappoint. I mean, I got a little frustrated because I was like, Oh my God, we can't do these things. But the, but the reality for my, you know, from an out of character perspective is this guy's supposed to be hard. He's not supposed to be just walk up and slaughter him. And, and he's the big baddie for this, for first sections of things. And so I thought it was, pretty good epic fight from that perspective
2: it really was and credit uh is due to ben who from my understanding and he's talked a little bit with us about this after sessions that he took this character Suffolk and took what was in the material for the campaign and and built him into this bigger foe for us uh this isn't necessarily as written way the character would work in this campaign, Rhyme of the Frostbin. You you do a little more with this guy, Ben.
0: He's such a great character, I think, to play with because his role in the campaign is to start to set up and give the characters this something that they can maybe find some tangible information out about why the world is, you know, why the ice is covered precious. in darkness. Mm-hmm. He's somehow maybe potentially linked to the frost maiden. He says so himself in an earlier session saying, you know, why isn't he clothed? Well, it's because he was bored on w- midwinter's day, right? He, said, yep. he tells you this. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this buildup that maybe he's somehow linked. Yep. I don't think you truly found out anything specific, but when he died, mm, remember yeah. there was the
1: yeah. He had out this his
0: pores and orifices was this blue mist that yep. then dissipated. You know, after a, after a moment, so yeah. it was a uh, an interesting encounter, a great buildup, and one thing I'll say about the the actual encounter itself was that this is where. So many times, when you do things like theater of mind or um even if you do some basic draw something draw some squares or something on on a on a grid that gets lost, and that is the full three dimensional element of buildings, so I had grabbed a few uh of the my old fantasy buildings that I have and laid them out over the top of my just basic grid in a in a way that it looked like a street and let everybody know where Sithan's house was and kind of set them up, you know, where they were having their conversation at the start of this encounter. And because of that, I think yes, there were points in the combat where I think where people were seated you couldn't you it was hard to see what was going on on the table. In fact, it was hard at a point for me as the DM because of where the miniatures had man- maneuvered, but it allowed for this like, well, where did he go? What was where is he? What's he doing? Where is he running between buildings and leveraging the terrain as part of the combat that made this boss fight as epic as it was. It wasn't just the fact that Sephic was a big bag of hit points and that could regenerate, but the fact that he's darting between buildings and, oh, crud, you can't you, that you can really visually see that you don't have yeah. line of sight on this guy anymore. Like, I can't see him. He's out of sight. like those things became big, big factors as this combat progressed.
1: no, I, I thought it was great, too, because then even the players were leveraging that to their advantage. Like Lyndall was like, okay, I'm going to climb on top of of Sithin's house. He's like, I'm going to get on the roof because then I can get line of sight. So he was, yeah. like, the players were beginning to look at those three dimensions and be like, okay, I can't keep up with him. But if I can get line of sight, I can keep doing something. So it was interesting to see how the players played with that three-dimensionals, too.
2: It really helped build a feeling and a visual that this was happening in a real place, too. Mm-hmm. You know, more than maybe even just 2D you know, flat building tiles or something might, might do. There's a point where Suffolk dashed away from us, got away from the compelled duel and made a beeline towards Sithin's house. And that tension of like, he's right there. Like he can get into the house. And we knew that the locks didn't work because we had broken them. And so just that tension of watching him being right there, just about to get into the house was really great. Hats off to you, Ben. I mean, having the, having the models and the 3D stuff is uh, always adds. I think. All
0: right. Yeah, the great part was I didn't have to do a whole lot of prep work or or creation. I just literally grabbed a couple buildings out of the back room and put it on the map and was like, okay, let's go.
2: Worked great. Yeah.
1: So, question I had for you, Justin, what do you think were the role playing highlights out of these couple of sessions that you had?
2: Yeah, uh, I mentioned a little bit before, I think, when you and Lyndall were interrogating Seth N in the Wet Trout, there were some like moments of dialogue that you guys had where it's like it felt like you had written something out as dialogue for this role playing game and were reading it. It was good. I was totally into it. You were getting in this guy's face. And now that I know that you were also driven by some of this other stuff going on with your uncle, your attitude and your aggressiveness makes even more sense. But either way, both of you guys had some really good some role playing there. and And when you went to go to his house and you're trying to kick down his door and kind of intimidate slash plead with him, hey, man, we're trying to help you like, let us know this information. really good stuff. Also just wanted to mention. Swifty, the wizard, uh, is a fan of Tasha's hideous laughter. And every time he casts it, he uh, shouts out to whoever he's casting it some kind of terrible pun or joke as he does it. It's hilarious and really good. Just finding, you know, some 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 quirk of his character to, to bring into the game. Really like that. Yeah, I think. I
0: think it fits Sean and his play style because he is a—he's almost the comedic relief yeah. of the whole group because he's—he's he's quite often making little quips and jokes, anyways. Right, and it's to a point now when he casts it, he lays out the joke, and I'm like, okay, what's the DC? What's yeah. my, yeah, what a, what, my spell? Yeah, you know what—he doesn't name? say
2: he's casting it. He just tells the joke, and then you—and <laughs> then you ask for the DC. Yeah. Okay.
1: he He is really a great counterpoint, I think, to Ben's thing, where it's like other people can be more serious characters, and his character's never serious. He's just like, you know, he's all about just the the comedic relief and and I, I think it's great. It's always nice to have that in the party. Um I, I think for me, the two that always really draw it out for me is, and 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 I and I full transparency, Rika is my wife. But, um, you know she she has these I, i've I've watched my wife play role-playing characters for quite a few years, and she always really gets into character. And it's just interesting to see her because when you see her at the table, she's like almost always she's Rika. and Rika is this bubbly, halfling druid that just like like doesn't have a care in the world and, you know, just kind of is very impulsive, and that always, I think, comes across really well. And the thing I really like about Koth is Koth is always Koth, and and you're very consistent with that. So um, I, I always just kind of love that, because I would say Rika and Koth have found their characters very quickly. I mean, I, I think Lindel is very good, too, but his his character is good in different ways, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, Rika's kind of over the top, Koth is a little over the top in their way, too, so...
2: Yeah, I'm excited to see how your character develops, Matt. I think you you found some interesting avenues, like different different aspects of of Yanros to kind of bring out, which was really cool. Like you said, I think prior to this you were a little more Yanros wouldn't talk as much. He you would talk as a player, but in terms of like Yanros, you know, having a distinct personality, definitely came out more in this session than I've seen, and that was really cool. Yeah.
1: All right. So the last top, one of the last things we usually talk about is game learning points. So uh Ben, what do you think is a good tip for people?
0: So this is where I'll chime in with the, my DM's tip for for the day. Yep. My DM's tip was all about speeding up combat. And I start and I dropped that one at the beginning of session 3. Yeah. When we did the combats in the previous session in session two with the verbigs, it was very slowed down it was very much the group a group think about player character actions and things started to bog and with six players if everybody starts doing this instead of being able to get through a round of combat very quickly and keep the pacing nice and fast it gets it, it becomes a problem but even with four players or three players it's something to be very respectful of And so I had given a speech about that at the beginning of session three about, you know, combat rounds are six seconds. Really, you don't have time to group think or debate these things. When it's a character's turn, let them state what their actions are. Everybody else needs to be patient and quiet at the table. Let them do their thing. And if what they do maybe isn't the most optimized thing, but it's what their character would do or whatnot, that's how the game should work, and that creates situations which help tell the story. Everybody bought into it, and from session three on, when we did get combat encounters, they snapped along much faster and much cleaner. And uh, when we got to the Sephic fight, because that went for four four or five rounds of combat, compared to that second Verbig fight that took that was like three rounds of combat, Mm-hmm. It was the same amount of in-game time, or in real-world time, that it took us to play them. And it really was that buy-in from the group that, oh, it it is actually more enjoyable if I just let people do what they're going to do, mm-hmm. and I get to do what I want to do faster. And, and play, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think combat is such a big part of Dungeons & Dragons that being it, when you do it right and it's done well, it's it's actually keeps the pace and the the speed going appropriately and you can master that with a group of larger, a larger group. It's, it's super fun. So that was my big tip and, and the big thing that you can, I can take away is from a player's perspective, know where you are in initiative order, be ready when it's your turn, don't group think every action and don't worry if you're gonna, you're going to taking the most optimized action do you know think about you know what you're doing in this moment what's your character what would your character really do in this moment is it whip out their sword and dash into combat or is it hide behind a crate and take a bow shot you know what are those things that you're doing and and then just snap it bing 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 this is what i'm doing i'm going to give a real quick description of what i'm doing roll the dice dm tells me you know, what it what it did in the narrative and boom, next player.
1: I think that's great advice. I, I mean, I think to to counter, to support that, you know, one of the things I noticed this last round, last couple sessions was, you know, take a little bit of time to really learn your own abilities. You know, every time you get a new level, take some time, really learn what those things do. You know, take a little bit of time, especially for combat, because I feel like combat is the thing that will really eat up a lot of time. Learn some of those abilities. Like, what is it to grapple somebody? What is it to do this? You don't have to learn every fine detail of every single piece, but take a few moments to at least understand the basics of some of those core combat things. Having to stop for five minutes to look it up and debate it. See,
0: The vast majority of the rulebook is the player's handbook is everything to do about combat. When you look at your yep. character yeah. sheet, other than this little column of skills, and it's a very short succinct column of skills, everything else on your character sheet is combat. Yep. So it's it's a big big deal and knowing your abilities. It it is. It's a really point and it does play into that speeding up the combat. It does play into that speeding up situational things potentially even if you're a spellcaster well where where and when are those combat oriented spells or those role-playing spells really useful to use
2: so i don't have a a tip per se but an observation that maybe we can think about a solution for come back to as here's what we did and turned it into a tip um you mentioned some bickering that we were doing at one point when we were trying to stake out in front of Sithen's house. And I think we have, as a group, a bit of a tendency to have these debates sort of in an out-of-character fashion. Maybe it's we're trying to optimize. Maybe it's we're trying to share information just as players. And I think it can have the same effect as slowing down combat, where we're not really driving a narrative the story in the debate. And I and I like that you Ben will bring that into the story by saying, you know what, the characters are sitting there bickering, so I'm going to have something happen. That is cool, and I like that that you know even our quote-unquote out of character actions can have an effect on the game like that. What I w- was thinking about when you were talking about that is how can we have those kinds of debates, maybe do them quicker, but in a way that drives story narrative or do it a little more in character, or a little less metagamey, maybe. So that's just something I want to think about for the next time we play, and think about how I definitely contribute to that, where I want to start thinking about things as a player instead of as a character. What can I do to use that as a in-character debate to drive the story instead of slow down the game by just talking as players or something like that?
0: it is certainly a challenge when you have six players in a party that this is almost inevitably going to be something that happens. I actually watch it happen on Critical Role. I happen I happen to have watched it happen in other uh, D&D groups that I've watched over the years when there are a significant number of players at the table. And we are blessed with a number of not only six players, but players that are very vocal in what they want to do or what they think a situation, what the best tactics are to do, what the what the way they want to interact or react to that to that particular scenario that I put in front of you and at some level it is it is very okay, certainly, I thought it was very important to allow you all as a group to try to come up with a way you wanted to set up and be prepared and plan for this encounter with Sephic. It, it's something we've been building to. I thought it was very important. But it was not something where it was, oh, hey, we're going to spend the next the rest of the night. And so part of my, I think, the job of the DM, and it's the job of the players too, right? You need to police yourselves but it's a job of the DM to set, help set that pacing when we start to go off the rails. And it was great from my perspective because I wasn't being an active participant of any of those times where things started to go off the rails. I just, you know, I'm sitting there just listening away, like, okay, we're having this great conversation at the table, things are going, you know, I look at the clock a couple of times and then go, oh, I need to move things along or we're not, or we're going to be looking at this map and table setup in four weeks <laughs> and starting that session with the exact same debate all over again you yeah, know those are the kind of things that i do behind the screen and you're right i do i do try to drive it it's it's important that the players do it as well and who knows that might be a future dm tip where i come up with some tips for you guys on being able to deal with those situations.
1: All right. Well, this has been a great conversation, folks. I'm glad we can kind of share some insights for people. Any final words before we sign off on this episode of Tales of the Cold North?
0: Just remember, your DM is not your enemy. We're all here to be friends and have fun together at the table. So let's get together and roll those dice. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you leave a review of this show wherever your favorite place is to find podcasts. Oh, and by the way, give us a like on our Facebook page. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest while you're at it. If you haven't looked recently, make sure you catch up on the blog at wiscodice.com. Hey, Brian, what's that site?
2: Oh, darn I forget. Uh, Justin, what's our website again? com.
0: That's right. It's wiscodice.com. And until next time, everyone, peace out.